All right, well, to, today we're starting lesson one of Understanding Biblical Doctrine, the workbook. If you have yours, go ahead and turn there. And if you don't have one, there's some on the uh, windowsill. If you want one, you can get one. Pastor's wife is allowed to get a workbook. Um, so we're going to start on lesson one, which is the revelation and inspiration of Scripture. And uh, this is where several systematic theologies start. This is where the Westminster Confession starts uh, with the Word of God. And we must have a solid foundation of the Word of God before we can dig deeper into the doctrines of God. Um, so, Richard, do you want to open us in prayer and then we'll get started? So to start us off, I want to I want to very briefly read the verse that's up there in the memorized box on lesson one, John chapter 20 and verse 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That is the purpose of the scriptures that has been given to us to, to give us life so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so I want to I run through these first few questions with you uh, under the what do you think about the Bible section. Um. And just give me what you what you think. Yes, no. In uh, that way, we can kind of gauge where we are as a group. So, number one, the Bible is true in matters of faith, but may contain slight errors in history. Is that true or false? False. Number two, we can learn that God is a trinity of persons without consulting the Bible. True or false? False. We need that revelation. Number three, verbal inspiration means that each and every word of the Bible was directly dictated by God and that the human writers served mainly as stenographers. True or false? False. Verbal inspiration is that the Word of God uh, gave the writers what to say, but they used their own uh, language, their own personalities. Um, what this is describing is what's known as dictation 
or mechanical inspiration. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later. I have some comments to make on the distinction between the two. Because I don't think if you say true on that, that you're entirely wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, and, and like I said, we'll we'll talk about it in just just a moment. Uh, but there there's some there's some nuances that I want to bring out there. Number four, this is this is a curious one. Um, the King James version is the infallible Word of God. True or false? The answer, the answer would be true. And, and, and here, here's, here's what I want you to think about. When I'm preaching up here, or when Pastor Malin was preaching up here, and we would preach from the King James, were we preaching the inspired and errant infallible Word of God? Yes. Historically... The Reformed have held that even in the native language, that this is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The trick there is the King James using that same word. Yeah, and, and yeah, like what they're trying, what they're trying to combat with that question is King James only us. Yeah. So that that's what they're trying to get at. But I think they're making a category error there. Um, I think you could very easily change out King James Version in this sentence with the Geneva Version, and you would still have an answer of true. Um, And so that shows the necessity of being precise in our language because even something as simple as a statement like that can cause confusion. Number five, the New Testament is more valuable than the Old Testament. True or false? False. Number six, a person can have saving faith in Christ without believing the Bible to be true. True or false? I like the nuance you're putting there. I would say, in general, the answer to this question is, is false. If you have saving faith, you will believe the Word of God is true, in general. But we don't believe that you know, having a knowledge, having a belief that the word of God is 100% true is necessary before coming to Christ. And so, like the nuance that Alice is putting on it, you can have those who 
in their initial coming to Christ are not yet convinced that the Bible is wholly true. Have they still come to Christ? Yes. So, I like that nuance, Alice. Well, I, I want to, I, I, I want to know more particulars on the question. You know, is the person saying, "Well, I'm not quite sure about that Jonah story," or is the person saying, "Yeah, this Bible is just a work of fiction," because there's a distinction there. So, what we're getting at in in these questions, and you guys are picking up on it, is we have to be precise. We have to be willing to nuance, and sometimes answers to these questions at face value may seem black and white, but really they're not. And then the, the last, or no, the last one on page five, we are able to accept the scriptures as God's word because they satisfy our ability to reason. False. Yes, the scriptures ought to appeal to our reason, but we accept them as the word of God because of the Spirit's testimony in our lives, in our hearts. Eight, God does not speak to men today apart from scriptures. True or false? I'm going to nuance it. Generally true. Generally, the way in which God speaks to men today is through the Word of God. But our Reformed Presbyterian forefathers understood that we have the ordinary means of grace, which is the reading, preaching of the Word, praying, sacraments, and singing of psalms. But they also understood that there are extraordinary means of grace. And the second book of discipline for the Church of Scotland talks about the ordinary offices of the church being that of of two orders, elders and deacons, but that there are extraordinary offices within the church, that of apostle, prophet, and evangelist, And those things have ceased with the closing of the apostolic times, but that God may at times stir them up if the occasion arises. And you can read some accounts of our Reformed Presbyterian forefathers during the killing times when God stirred up those extra spiritual gifts, those uh, supernatural giftings, uh, those extraordinary offices. Uh, So, while generally, yes, we would say it's true. It's only through the Word of God that uh, the Lord speaks to men today. I would nuance it to say that in specific times and when the situation necessitates it, God can and has throughout history since the closing of the canon 
stirred up those extraordinary offices and gifts. Um, I'm going to non-nuance you. Okay? Not personally, but I truly think what you said is the means of grace of Mary and that God can stir us up. But when the question uses the word speak, it speaks to us. So I'm talking like language, through spiritually or normal, only in the scripture. We don't receive dreams or visions or any of that or gobbledygook. But when he speaks to us, when we read the Bible, when we hear the Bible being read, God's speaking to us. Yeah, and I think that that's where once again where we need the we need the precision. What is meant by speak yeah. in this sentence? Is this whole movement about receiving a word from the Lord mm-hmm. and God speaking to people uh, and giving them the correct information? Yeah, extra biblical. And um, that, that that's a problem. Mm-hmm. The can is closed. Absolutely. So if they're speaking to them, they're speaking in a way to quicken their spirits, to show them the way, to open a door or something like that. I get it. But they're not giving them more scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think this question relates just to the scripture. Not to other extraordinary things. Yeah. I mean, I believe that God speaks to people occasionally, gives them, quickens their spirit, works with them, helps them, gives direction, and so mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's just a matter of in prayer, thinking through, but God will help bring clarity to those things. Is that God speaking to me? Um, you know, it's. it's at some point, it's hard to separate these things. That's kind of what you meant. Yeah. At least talk about something extraordinary. Well, you know, like, the other like the killing times. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I say, generally, ordinarily, the answer to this question is true. God does not speak to men apart from the scriptures. And that's how we need to understand this. You know, the the notion of I can be in prayer and I can receive a word from God, that's false. Um, this notion of I can I can lay down my Bible and just have it flip open and then God's gonna tell me which verse to read. It's false. You know, that's that's closer to divining, that's closer to witchcraft than it is to scripture to the word of God. And so we have to understand that. Uh, but we, we also can't be so shut off from the fact that God has and does um, in very specific contexts use extraordinary means. But you never, I mean, you're, you're a mathematician. You, you know this. You know statistics. You're, you're a chemist. You know this. You know, you know how science works. You never let the outliers dictate the actual data. The outliers are not to, to determine 
what you say is the ordinary. And so that's how we have to understand this as well. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And, and, and that's where it goes back to what, what do you mean by speak? Because I mean, if, you read, if you read Psalm 19, the psalmist explicitly says that day to day, the, the creation ordinate, uh, the creation, the heavens, uh, it pours out speech. It uttereth speech. And so we have to say, that God speaks through general revelation. And so it, it depends on what you mean by the word speak. I was supposing God reveals himself through general creation. But as a language he doesn't speak. Yeah, and, and if, if, we're, if we're tying language to the, to the term speak, then I'm with you, Charlie. But I... I and that's, that's likely what the author of this workbook is intending by it. The use of language in communication. Um, but I think, I think we need to be a little more nuanced than that. And Matt, I think you're bringing out something good. The psalmist explicitly says that creation pours out speech. Um, number nine. The only evidence we have that God exists is the record of him in the Bible, true or false? False. And number 10, evangelical Christians believe that every statement in the Bible must be believed literally. True or false? False. All right. So that kind of gives us a baseline. Of, of our understanding of some of the things of Scripture. Uh, very quickly, I want to run through two paragraphs in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Bobby, you want to say something? Real quick. So, so we've just gone through these questions. In order to see where we were, as a, as a seminary graduate with all your education, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> just thought I'd ask. No, no, no. You, you guys are where you guys are where I expected you to be as members of a reformed church. You know, you don't hold to, you know, receiving dreams every night that the Lord is showing you these things. You don't you don't have a low view of scripture and say that there's contradictions throughout it. Um you guys have a high view of Scripture. You understand the use of Scripture. You understand what is Scripture and what is not. That it is the Old and New Testament. That the New Testament isn't more important than the Old. And so you guys, like, that's what I was expecting from you guys. Because I know that you are members in a Reformed church. Um but a lot of the nuances that we've talked about so far, I don't expect everybody to have thought about all of these nuances. And so that's why I want us to have that conversation for us to talk about, well, what does speak mean here? Or, you know, what, what actually did happen in the 1660s and 1670s of our Reformed forefathers? What happened during that time? 
that you know you have someone who is a pastor in the Reformed Presbyterian Church who now is known universally as Prophet Peden. There's a reason for that. And so, you know, being able to talk about some of these more in-depth, more nuanced things is why I wanted to do this study. I know you guys know doctrine. I know you guys are solid. And so this is just building upon what you already know. So to answer your question, yes, you're good. You raised it at the beginning. All right. So before we move on, I do want to read two separate paragraphs from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, we're, we're in chapter 1, and this is of the Holy Scripture. And I'm going to read paragraph 1 first. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people now being ceased. And then, uh, then I want to read paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they, have, uh, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. I know that's, that's a lot there and I don't want us to, to dive into an exposition of the confession but I want that to stay in the back of your mind as we approach the rest of this chapter. Um, because those things 
are what's the foundation of what we believe about the scriptures. So let's, let's move on to look at the choose the best answer uh, portion on page six. Uh, verbal inspiration means A, the truths of the Bible are infallible but expressed in men's words. B, the words of the Bible in the original manuscripts are without error. And C, God inspired men to write down their religious ideas to share with others. Which of those is the best answer? B, B, the words of the Bible in the original manuscripts are without error. And this is where I want to talk about what verbal inspiration is versus mechanical inspiration. So verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture is what it's oftentimes called, is that the Spirit gave the words uh, to the authors, that the, the Spirit stirred them along as they were writing, so that as the authors were writing in their own words, in their own uh, emotional, personal style, the Spirit was moving through that to inspire them to write the words that they did. That is what verbal plenary inspiration is. And so it's the words themselves that are inspired and not simply the ideas, not simply the concepts. And because the words themselves are inspired, it is the Word of God. And that was a debate that, or, or an issue that came up in the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century with the neo, neo-Orthodox. You know, we believe that this is the Word of God, but the neo-Orthodox would say it becomes the Word of God when you read it and the Spirit brings it to life within you. Um. So, go. So, inspiration, like what we see of Scripture, only pertains to Scripture. But, in our view of the preaching of the Word, we believe, we, I say we, Reformed Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians, uh, we believe that the faithful Preaching of the Word of God is the very Word of God and ought to be received as such. Um, and so, 
I am not receiving an inspired word from God. So I'm not acting as a prophet of old, but I do stand in a prophetic sense before you as the congregation proclaiming the word of God. And so it ought to be received as the word of God. The faithful exposition and preaching of the word of God is to be received as the word of God. Yeah, it, it, and it goes, when, when we're talking about inspired in regards to Scripture, it's not the same way. But the Spirit works effectually through the preaching of the Word. And so in that sense, just as the Spirit worked in inspiring the men to write this book, the Spirit works in the hearts of men to receive the preaching of the word and be converted. Does that make sense? Hearing, hearing of the word. Hearing, yeah. I, I just, I, in my mind, I'm sorry if I'm distracted again, but my, the hearing of the word is through saving grace. I, I, I immediately thought that would be verbal inspiration. But I, I can see the difference. So, go ahead. Uh, I was pleased with Charles' question. Yeah. yeah just a thought. And so... So verbal inspiration, that the Spirit using the faculties of the men led them along in writing this book, giving them the words to say using their own faculties. To be distinguished from mechanical inspiration, which is more of Think of a puppet that the Holy Spirit is the puppeteer causing the writers to do everything. Um, and so the Holy Spirit dictates uh, the word to the men and through simple automatic writing, uh, the word is, is given to us, that it's, it's mechanical, it's somewhat robotic. Uh, the spirit, you know, think of it in, in, in modern computing language, the spirit is programming the writers what to pen. Um, and to take a strict view of that is to not take into consideration that the elements of the writer's personal uh, faculties, personal nuances of person, uh, of, of style, of, of character, of personality, it's, it's to completely disregard those. So if you read, if you read Exodus, and you read the Gospel of John, are both of those books inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do they sound anything alike? 
Big difference. Yes? An example is the prophets, mm -hmm. where Isaiah is probably one of the most learned prophets, the most uh, high class. Um, he uses, I have to take this on faith from what I've heard, because I don't know Hebrew, but his Hebrew is much more scholarly mm -hmm. than, say, um, Hosea. Hosea, there we go. I was trying to remember. And Hosea was kind of a country bumpkin. And he uses a different, different language, if you would. Uh, it's like um, mm -hmm. someone from Princeton writes something, and someone from Appalachia writes something. You'll see a difference in their styles. Yeah. Now, they could both be profound in what they write and really in what they say. Mm hmm but the writing styles are going to be different. Yeah, it, that's what comes out in Scripture. In, in the New Testament, you see it as well. Uh, Luke is a physician, highly trained. And so he uses more complex Greek than John, who is the youngest of the disciples, likely a teenager, who is a fisherman, who very likely did not have much education. And so you can see through looking at their writings that the Spirit obviously uses the writer's faculties in writing the message, but that's not to say that it's the Spirit's just giving them the ideas and then they're writing it. No, the Spirit is actually writing through them but using their faculties as well. And so that's why I say we can't, there needs to be a distinction there between verbal plenary inspiration and mechanical inspiration. But I don't think the division, the, the separation ought to be as sharp as some theologians want to make it. Um, because when you read Second Peter, uh, forget the, the chapter and verse, 2 Peter, where he's talking about the inspiration of the Word. And it says that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit carried along the men, and I've used that phrase several times, they were carried along by the Spirit. The word that he uses there is very much a passive word. Is it 2 Peter 121? 1.21, yeah. And the word that he uses there is actually a, a naval word that talks of a ship that has no capability of, of being able to go on its own being pulled by another ship. And so what we're seeing in that verse is something that sounds a whole lot more like mechanical than what a lot of modern theologians are willing to admit. So I think we need to have the concept of verbal plenary being our framework from which we understand the Scriptures because there is the distinctions between the writers, their characteristics, their styles. But we need to understand that there was a lot more direct involvement by the Spirit and the writers were a lot more passive in the inspiration 
than what a lot of your modern scholars are willing to admit. Does that make sense? Yes. You talking about the? You talking about the Ethiopian eunuch? So the example of uh, can I be saved by reading God's word? I think that's the mechanical side. Mm. He's not speaking to us, but he's speaking to the mechanical. Yeah. So the can I be saved by hearing Pastor uh, Josh uh, preaching? Yes. Yeah. I mean that that gets. That gets to, you know, what does it mean that, that the reading of the word and the preaching of the word are means of grace? And why do we distinguish between the reading and the preaching? You know, we do. And you're making a point that, yes, the spirit does effectually work through both the reading of the word and the preaching of the word or hearing of the word. So I think you're spot on there with that. Um, taking into consideration this distinction between the Spirit's operative work in reading the Word, hearing the Word preached, and how the Spirit operated in inspiring these men. Yeah, I'm not sure that applies to two different distinctions you're saying, verbal and mechanical, but that's what I'm Yeah, yeah. I understand where you're going. All right. Does that, does that make sense? I, I know I spent probably too much time on that, but that's an important aspect. I think there's one other aspect. Uh, in this answer, it talks about the original manuscripts being without error. Um, so we wouldn't, I guess, hold to the belief that the Bible was re-inspired when the King James translators translated the Bible, for instance, mm-hmm. that God was re-inspiring the Bible. Uh, the original manuscripts are the ones that we consider to be Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much when we take a translation, for instance, I, I guess the King James would have been a popular one to pick on. Um, a lot of people understand him, uh, for a translation to be without error, there's going to be you know, differences. It's not the same as what the Bible was, say. Yeah, inspiration was a one-time act. Inspiration 
only only the original manuscripts, only what's called the autographs, are immediately inspired by God. Um, but I'm going to disagree with this this answer here in B that the words of the Bible in the original manuscripts are without error. I know that it's tying it to what verbal inspiration means. But it's not simply the words in the original manuscripts that are without error. Um, That's the flaw of Benjamin Warfield's view of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Um, Historically... And when I say historically, I'm not talking about just the Reformed Church. I'm talking about the church. Up until the late 1800s, universally, the entire church worldwide understood that it was not simply the autographs that were inerrant, without error, but that faithful opographs, faithful copies are without error. And so, when we're talking about what inerrancy is, we have to understand what an error is. And I can pick up this King James Bible, and I can say, this Bible is without error. It is inerrant. It does not err. And I can say that because it is a faithful translation based off of the faithful opographs of the received text that the church has received throughout all of history. Now, I can sit here and say, you know, I think the translators could have used this word here instead of this one, and it would have brought out a fuller sense. But that's not an error. That's a nuance. And so we... When we're talking about errors, it's, you know, if we, have, if we have a manuscript or if we have a translation that says, and on the fourth day Jesus rose from the dead, that's an error. Because obviously it wasn't on the fourth day, it was on the third. Uh, I guess the question is, are you criticizing that just the translation? That the translation is an error because they have not translated something compared with what the statements actually There's some challenges there. There's two types, there's several different ways to translate. And the NIV, for example, uses more of a dynamic model, trying to get the idea rather than the exact words in the translation. And I think they they, they err in that by, by, by moving away from the exact text into the nuance. They're trying to, they're trying to it's a noble effort to try to capture the nuances of, of the meanings. Um, and it can be helpful sometimes, but it's not a faithful translation. Yeah, I think Bob, you're right. My opinion is the error begins when the meaning, purpose of meaning, the author changes. Not so much for the borders. Well, I'm trying to capture that. Yeah, yeah. Changes the meaning, uh, then, then we've got error. 
Yeah, and and, and, it, and it goes back to what we understand as uh, what is the Word of God. Um, let's see. Because, I mean, it's it's not it's not simply the ideas that God inspired. It is the words. And when you start trying to translate via idea, well, now you're interposing or interjecting uh, exposition or explanation upon the text and putting that codified as Scripture. So by by saying this is what this word is conveying, this is what it's meaning, you're explaining the text instead of just giving the text. I don't I don't want interposition of uh, exposition in my in my Bible. I've got commentaries for that. I got you know I've got X number of commentaries that'll tell me what this word or this phrase is conveying. I don't need that in my actual Bible because that's not what God inspired. God inspired the word, not the meat, not the, not the idea. Um, but to, to get back to, to what I'm saying about you know, the original manuscripts, we have to throw out this notion that only the autographs, only the original manuscripts are inerrant and infallible. Because if you, if you have that in your mind, if that's what you believe, then I can guarantee you, you will never have confidence that the Bible that you hold is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And you will never have confidence that what we have is the complete Word of God. Because we don't have the autographs. And so if, if, you, if you only follow the logic that the autographs, the original manuscripts, are inspired and infallible, then there's always going to be that quest to getting back to His as close to the original as you possibly can, which means you're never going to have the complete Word of God. Because if you're only as close to what God has inspired and to what's inerrant and what's infallible, well, close isn't exact. So we have to ditch this notion that the Word of God is only inerrant and infallible in the original manuscripts and we have to hold to what our confession actually teaches that the original manuscripts were immediately inspired by God and that by His singular care and providence has been kept pure in all ages. And so the authentical Word of God has been passed down through faithful copies of manuscripts and that's what we have today
So that that's where I wanted to. I'm going to just say it. Make a correction to what's written in this workbook, um, and we can we can dive into that later. I'm sure that Pastor Malin has talked with you about it as well. Um, well, let, let's let's keep going through. I want to finish out this section of choose the best answer, so that we can pick up on Revelation next week. All right, number two, the Bible is A, the only revelation of God to man, B, the only infallible rule of faith and life for Christians today, or C, one of the best ways God speaks to men today? B, the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and life for Christians today. All right, number three, the writers of Scripture, A, expressed their personalities in their writings but were kept from error from the Holy Spirit, B, were like secretaries taking direct dictation from God, or C, received God's perfect truth and put it into their own words, which are not perfect. A, we just, we just covered that. Writers of Scripture expressed their personalities in their writings, but were kept from error by the Holy Spirit. Number four, the Old and New Testaments, A, include the Word of God, B, reveal the basic ideas of God, or C, are the Word of God. C. Thank you for getting that one right. And number five, the Bible is truly inspired because A, it is the most reasonable explanation of God and humanity. B, it is the self-authenticating word of God. Or C, it inspires everyone who reads it with an open mind. B, it is... The Bible is truly inspired because it is the self-authenticating Word of God. Um, what does self-authenticating mean? Uh, it testifies to itself that it is true. Hmm. Yeah. The Word of God testifies to itself that it is true. And... I want us to think, and I'll close on this and then leave, leave it open for a few questions or comments. If this is the Word of God, and we believe that it is, then the Word of God must have been given by God Himself, and it must be true. Because the Word itself is part of, of the characteristic of God being true. It bears the marks of its author. And so if God himself is true, then his word must be true. Does that make sense? And so because God cannot err, the word cannot err. Because God is infallible, infallible, the Word is infallible. 
Because God is unchangeable, the Word is unchangeable. It bears the mark of its author. So, I want to open it up. We've got, I mean, we're actually a little over, but that's fine. Uh, we got a, a few brief moments to open it up for questions or comments. Yeah, I, we we definitely are in a better position um, because of how the Lord preserved the word throughout the ages. Um, and when I like, if we do if we do criticize a translation because of an error, oftentimes it is just criticizing the translation. Um, but you can't take. So I can't take my received text, Greek New Testament, and my UBS 5, I think is what it is, and say these are both the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Because one has words that the other doesn't, and the other has entire phrases and verses that the other doesn't. So one is in error and one is not, or potentially both are in error, but if you're going to say that, then we have to say that God hasn't preserved his word and that we don't have it today. So either, you know, 
pick pick your pick your text. You know, either the UBS five, the Nestle Elan Nestle Elan twenty eight, or the TR. Is is inerrant, is infallible, is the true word of God, or none of them are. Um, but they can't all be inerrant and infallible copies of the Greek New Testament because at least one of them is containing errors. But also, I guess, even from among those, you have the original writings, nothing has been lost as far as I can tell. We we have everything that the apostles and the prophets wrote down, yes. There is nothing... Nothing hidden in a cave somewhere or in a monastery or whatever that could ever be found that would change the Word of God that has been preserved for us to this day. That we have what the original authors wrote down and that the Holy Spirit inspired for the church. Yes. Charlie, you had a statement to make. Oh, I, just, I agree with that. I like Richard's idea of uh, we should at least try to stick to and work towards uh, reforming the meaning to the original in that direction. Or at least staying there. I, I, I often get well, frightened about the opposite of that. And, that. and that's change just for the sake of change. Translating just for the sake of Cultural today, you see it differently, the opposite. I'll take the public school system for example. They, they seek changing for change. Never mind the fact that something works well. Let's just change it for the sake of change. And that becomes detrimental. And so uh, I would say that uh, when translating becomes a factor, just translating, just for the sake of translating, to accommodate our culture today, then we run into problems. So there's two directions. One, as reformers, we look to where we can stick close to or align with, even get closer to the original, which is good. Or we can move the way our cultural world does and say, how can we make it even better, uh, accommodating our lifestyles, our thinking? That's an error. Yeah, and and one thing to be cautious of in talking about this stuff, and we can talk more in depth about preservation and translation at the end of this lesson. So get through all of what's in the workbook, and then we can talk about this stuff more in depth because the workbook doesn't really get into it. But one thing to remember about it is we need to be very wary of... uh, adopting secular academia's notion of how to come to a more uh, pure original text. We need to be careful against that because the secular notion of textual criticism, which is used in in literary uh, programs throughout the world, isn't based upon a theistic understanding and it's not based upon a providential preservation understanding of the text. 
It's based on an atheistic worldview. Even those who are believers who are practicing that form of textual criticism, it's still with this evolutionist mindset that the that the word has has changed and 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 shaped and, and grown and developed and evolved throughout history, and we need to then use use these means to get back to what the original was. We need to take off all of the garbage that it evolved in and throughout history, and we need to get back. And that's not what we confess in how God pres- preserved his word, and it's not what the RP testimony says regarding textual criticism. It's not the job of academia to do textual criticism. Our RP testimony explicitly states it is the job of the church to weigh these matters, to weigh manuscripts, to do translation work. We should not just be accepting what academia is saying. We should be petitioning the church to do her own work. Um, but we can talk about that stuff at a later time. We're, we're already behind. And I want you guys to have just a, a brief break before our worship service. So, uh, Matt, can you close us in prayer?